You're listening to Token Talks, brought to you by Wing Venture Capital. I'm your host, Zach DeWitt. If you do a poor job of forecasting the development trends on a Bitcoin or on an Ethereum, either as a founder or you know an investor, you're really going to get burned. And we saw so much of that in, in the early days of Bitcoin. People just totally misunderstanding it, building businesses that just didn't work for it, funding those businesses. That's probably the biggest risk is misunderstanding the protocol itself. We try and stay super close to the dev teams. Today, we are joined by Matthew Walsh and Nick Carter, co-founders and managing partners at Castle Island Ventures. Castle Island Ventures focuses exclusively on public blockchains and invests in infrastructure and application companies that will enable these transformative protocols to power services for the next billion users. The team met while working at Fidelity, building out Fidelity's digital asset group. Based in Boston, the fund has a clear investment thesis around public blockchain infrastructure, and they have seen firsthand from their time at Fidelity what still needs to be built out from an infrastructure standpoint before crypto goes mainstream. I think you will greatly enjoy today's episode, as Matthew and Nick are some of the smartest investors in the space. So what is Castle Island? So we're an early stage fund. We're a venture fund. We're structured like a venture fund. Our focus is equity investments at the pre-seed or seed level into companies that are building in and around permissionless blockchains. So we have a, a heavy focus on some of the infrastructure. We have a view that permissionless blockchains are really a new paradigm, and there's an awful lot of infrastructure that will be needed to support that. And so when I say infrastructure, what that means to me and to us is you know things like key management, things like custody services, things like exchange technology, data companies, uh, really picks and shovels oriented businesses is really where we're spending most of our time focusing. And did a lot of the learnings from Fidelity influence the strategy for Castle Island? Absolutely. I mean, Fidelity has been at the forefront of this technology for an awful long time. You know, having been at the firm since 2014, I'd really had a front row seat to some of the immaturity in the infrastructure, particularly the financial market infrastructure around custody, key management and exchange technology. And so there is just this level of products and services that need to exist, regardless of which one of these blockchain networks you actually think will gain adoption. You you can have a protocol agnostic view, and I think most people can agree that there's a level of of this plumbing that just needs to exist in order for any of these things to be successful, in order for an institution to get comfortable holding these assets and, and giving their customers access to them. Yeah, it's kind of a thin line, though. I mean... There's this worry, I think, and it's warranted in many respects that the moment uh, institutions really start to play in this industry, it loses its soul and, and also the reasons to exist. I mean, there's this ongoing debate about, you know, what decentralization is for now. And, you know, there's one one side that says it's explicitly for breaking rules, you know, peer-to-peer in the spirit of BitTorrent, you know. And then the other side is, well, you know, it grants you... Uh, robustness and auditability and interesting transparency qualities. Um, So we're kind of trying to straddle that line a little bit. I mean, it's hard to back the more uh, crypto anarchic uh, startups out there. And you also do have to sell the, the crypto entrepreneurs on the fact that this tech will probably become institutionalized. And sometimes, you know, it's not a narrative everyone wants to hear. 
So I really believe that founders win with focus, and I think the same is true with investors. So you talked a little bit about your investment thesis and what you're looking for, some of the infrastructure, the plumbing, the middleware. Please elaborate a bit more on your thesis and what types of companies really excite you. One way we're different from other um, crypto venture funds, I would say, is that we, you know, we really don't plan in the token sandbox very much. Uh, So that's something uh, neither Matt nor I have been interested in. And so we're not really doing any of those pre-sale deals or equity for token deals uh, for that matter. Uh, We do think that, and maybe this is even a contrarian viewpoint today, that just proof of work, uh, fair launch, blockchains are still a valid idea and and have a future. I know there is a a paper from the Bank of International Settlements that came out today, which was kind of trashing proof of work. But to me, like the proof is in the pudding, right? It's it's been working for ten years. I think there's this gap between like theory and practice. And when Bitcoin was first created, a lot of cryptographers were very critical of it. They're like this system can't possibly work because there's no like formal security proofs. And then you had the distributed systems engineers that came along. And they're like, well, this can't possibly work because because of my expertise, I found this and this and that. And now we have this wave of economists saying, uh, yeah, proof of work uh, is actually fallible. You know, I think the the interesting situation that we have here is that Bitcoin like doesn't work in theory and it does work in practice. And that's kind of our attitude. So, of course, you're always going to be taking on a lot of uh, protocol risk if you back a portfolio company, which is building on a chosen protocol. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's a risk that we're, we're comfortable taking. And agnosticism is also probably a valid approach much of the time, but we're also unafraid to go for uh, some of the founders that are unashamedly building on, you know, on just Bitcoin, for instance, and that probably uh, might set us apart from a few of those other funds. If you play that forward a bit, do you think we'll see multiple chains that have value and have a bunch of usage, or do you think we'll see consolidation around one or two main permissionless blockchains? I'm curious if we have necessarily the same answer on this, but my view is that there will be multiple chains. I have no doubt that there will be. Now, I do not think that there will be multiple chains that have store of value properties and non-sovereign. There will not be 20 non-sovereign monies or 20 non-sovereign digital golds. I think that we're going to see a power law distribution of these type of assets. Um, I certainly don't think that it's just going to be Bitcoin to rule them all. I think the big question for the longer tail, you know, there's probably a lot of big questions, but one big question is why the token itself should have any value on those networks, particularly some of these networks that are promising to do things that are high volume uh, transactions where theoretically you could store your wealth in some other asset and then just transfer into that protocol token when you need to procure it, when you need file storage, when you need digital compute. You know, and so I do see a world where they there is interoperability, but it, it really comes down to where will users want to store their wealth. And I, I just don't think that we'll live in a world where there are hundreds of these doing that. Yeah, I would say and this probably isn't an original point, but, you know, the really great irony of this industry is that we were promised disintermediation and then we had this army of hucksters come along trying to re-intermediate and you know, shoehorn tokens into conventional business models where they just added tons of friction. In many cases, the token was just a means to extract value from some pool of dupes. You know? So I think the long tail will, will you know, absolutely be crushed here. But you know, one thing that I've come to understand is that 
there will be some equilibrium with, with multiple major uh, protocols that just make different technical trade-offs. And, you know, I don't think it's going to be a one-chain or roll-them-all uh, situation anymore. We often hear, especially in the media, people talk about the Google for crypto or the Fidelity for crypto, the Uber for crypto. What does that mean to you guys as you think about where the 100x investment opportunities will come in the space? Um, you've talked, you mentioned, you know, Bitcoin. Where else do you think there may be some of these very large, category-defining investment opportunities? Well, it depends if you're referring to uh, protocols themselves or to startups. But either, do you think there'll be opportunities in, in both of those categories, or just in just in one? Probably both, but we're most comfortable, you know, in startup land for sure. Uh, so that's you know what we devote most of our time to. I think it's tricky to have a startup that's building on some exciting new protocol because, you know, then the bet just compounds itself almost. You know, you now you, you need the protocol itself to succeed and, and the startup too. As for, the, you know, the really generational startups here, I, I think key management is such an underrated thing. And, and I think it can generalize far beyond just custodial management of cryptocurrencies. I really do believe that we're going to progress to this uh bifurcated internet where you have the surveilled internet which has much the same topology that it does today with power existing at the core and then i think we're going to have this alternative internet call it web3 call it you know dpki uh, self-sovereign identity there's a lot of jargon floating around but i do believe we're going to have this notion where power is sort of asserted back by the end users and and the influence flows back to the edges of the network. And end users choose to opt out of the surveilled WeChat-style internet and Facebook, Google, Amazon, etc., and you know restore their own ability and discretion to manage their data. I think there will be a startup that emerges to do that. And I think um, this notion of a public key infrastructure, which was kind of kick-started a little bit with PGP, never really caught on, never was you know went mainstream, Crypto is a Trojan horse for that. Uh, I think it's definitely woken it in the public consciousness and funded the, the tooling and the build out there. Uh, so a startup that could leverage that and actually give people access not just to cryptographic keys, which you know assign them rights in a blockchain system, but also just a much more general altering the topology of the internet system. I think that is a really, really big idea. And we're looking at those startups right now. Yeah, and maybe just to build on that a little bit, I think one of the things that we think a lot about is just the history of protocols and and where value has historically accrued to operating companies in relation to those protocols. And, and I think if you look at that history, you'll see that a lot of value accrues to the companies that are really good at understanding those protocols at a very granular level and extracting information off of those protocols. A lot of value also accrues to the companies that are very customer-centric and understand where user behavior is going and are able to build some of that design sensibility. And I think if you're able to combine both of those, then you can really have a powerful breakthrough. And so uh, some of that I'd expect to come in key management, some of that I'd expect to come in data, some of that I'd expect to come in customer financial services type of uh, activities. Where are you finding these companies? You guys are based in Boston. We're out here in San Francisco recording this podcast. Now you spend time in New York. Um, certain European cities as well. Where are the most fertile hunting grounds for Castle Island? Boston is uh, is, is an up-and-comer, man. Probably the third biggest hub in terms of VC, just conventionally, but uh, I'm very impressed with the crypto scene there. So obviously, you know, MIT being there is has a good long history with Bitcoin and crypto. 
our main stomping grounds are Boston, uh, New York, and SF. So Nick, you're hearing pitches all the time for the next wave of crypto infrastructure companies. You must have some ideas in your head for companies you want to see being built. Do you have any kind of requests for startups you're thinking through? I do, but maybe you can tell me as a VC, does it ever work? You know, like you come up with a great idea for a startup. I feel like that's not necessarily a forte. And the other thing being the ideas are super cheap and really it's the execution that matters. That said, I have some kind of wacky ideas for startups that I think would be interesting. Uh, So one would be, um, this is an interesting idea I've seen a few places. Uh, It would essentially get rid of uh, Bitcoin ATMs or or any of the, the crypto ATMs out there. And it's kind of a voucher-based approach whereby on a very mobile basis, you know, th- these could be the money changers in Tehran sell vouchers for Bitcoin, for instance. So you just do an exchange of fiat uh, for essentially a receipt with, you know, 16-digit code or whatever. And then that later on at your convenience, you can settle it and actually take ownership of the cryptocurrency. So that to me solves a lot of problems involved with buying Bitcoin at a point of sale where you don't really want to wait for four confirmations or anything. In smaller quantities, you can also get around, you know, the really onerous regulations about money transmission laws and everything. So that's an interesting kind of breed of startup that I think will bring, which will enable more connectivity to these systems from places that don't have those Coinbases and those Geminis, right? And that's where I think it actually matters the most. I see cryptocurrency is anti-authoritarian technology and it's always a shame to me that it's so difficult to get access to so a good frictionless uh, voucher based exchange to me would be a really interesting startup for sure other kind of weird ideas i have one would be a startup which and this would probably have to be pretty engineering or cryptography heavy team would be there's this growing trend of um of wanting custodians to prove out their reserves I know from firsthand conversations with a lot of those custodians that they're interested in actually generating these attestations because cryptographically speaking, you can prove a lot either just by disclosing a cold wallet address or with a zero knowledge proof uh, if you don't want to disclose what your address is, but that you do have a certain quantity of you know, Bitcoin or Ether or something. There's probably a startup opportunity there, given that this is so infrequent and there is appetite for this to assist custodians in generating those proofs of reserves or those attestations. I think the beauty of cryptocurrency really is the auditability function, but it's super underused. Uh, the fact that I can go and look at Bitfinex's cold wallet balance and watch a bank run happen in real time, which is what happened during one of the tether crises, uh, a lot of the depositors to Bitfinex lost confidence, and you could actually see the cold wallet being drained in real time. That to me is fascinating. You couldn't really have that level of auditability with Lehman Brothers, right? It just becomes disguised in layers and layers of risk and obfuscation. Things are much purer, you know, in crypto land in terms of being able to visibly display the risk. And I really like that. And I think that would actually give rise to new exchange business models, which are maybe not fully custodial. Maybe they have a reserve requirement that they, you know, maybe an 80% or 70% reserve ratio. And I know, you know, a lot of your hardcore Austrian Bitcoiners would be opposed to that, but there's something to be said for the free market working it out and having those auditability guarantees, I think, would would enhance that greatly. So two kind of interesting uh, startup ideas for any anyone enterprising listening. Nick, how much emphasis are you putting on DeFi? So the decentralized financial stack, 
So this is the ability for new types of um, low-fee products, you know, whether it be swaps or derivative products or loans that are much more transparent, much more potentially user-friendly, much more auditable. Is this a big investment area of focus for Castle Island or less in focus for you guys? I wouldn't say it's an investment theme for us just because it is uh, still really new. There's definitely challenges there in terms of squaring away some of the regulatory issues. I do like the don't ask permission, beg, how does beg forgiveness or yeah. ask, for, ask for forgiveness. I should probably know the, <laughs> the expression. I do see the logic for kind of Uberizing it and just like going for it and then negotiating with regulators once you have a good market position. These are really highly, you know, loan underwriting is a highly regulated industry and it's challenging to me. I think it will become very capital intensive to deal with some of that regulatory overhead. That said, I think it's absolutely worth paying attention to. There are so many bright people working on this stuff right now, and I'm seeing such continuous waves of innovation on the DeFi front, especially with the the loan facilities that operate essentially autonomously. That, to me, is absolutely fascinating. I do think Maker is one of the most important projects in the industry right now, even if the DAI is not the most popular stablecoin because it's not as capital efficient as your USDC or your Tether, I see the project itself as evidencing the potential for a new kind of financial system. And the transparency to me is is something that I've always liked about crypto. And I think it's really a winning feature. That said, it's mostly being used by the extreme hobbyists right now or, or traders that really understand deeply these systems and can reckon with the complexity. Um, so still a ways off from having mainstream appeal, but I would say absolutely one of the most interesting themes in the market today. And are you finding that you have witnessed really top-tier talent coming into crypto? Are you seeing top recent graduates from MIT, whether undergrad or PhD, you know, wanting to come into the space? Or have you seen um, things cooling down from a talent perspective over the last uh, eight, you know, 12 months? Things are really on fire, I'd say, from a talent perspective. We were giving a, a talk last week at a financial services uh, firm, and that was really one of the things we spent a lot of time talking about, is just the amazing flight of talent away from tech firms, away from financial services firms, and out of universities. It's really accelerated over the past couple of years. I mean, I remember when we first started looking at Bitcoin, and we were just thinking, well, you know, if we get some of this talent to enter. And this is really accelerated in the past couple of years. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, you, you have some of the flight with people that are disillusioned with the sort of Silicon Valley ethos, and they want to work in the, in the more, you know, decentralized. I know that there's this whole ethos developing now. But the thing that really caught my eye was the talent flight from the large bulge bracket financial services firms. That was extremely dramatic. And, and you have these new grads that could go out and do IB and instead they're uh, working on, you know, an open finance app to automatically give traders leverage. To me, that's that's really eye-catching, this kind of reversal of fortunes. So everyone always, I'm sure you guys get this question a lot of how early are we? Is this 1994? Is this 2002? You know, how, how do you guys think about the evolution of of crypto and, and where we are in this proliferation of this new promising technology? I do think we're pretty early. I mean, I, I like to use the TCPIP versus OSI type of analogy around, are we even coalesced around a base level protocol yet? And I think the answer is probably we're getting there, but not everyone has realized it yet. And so I, I do think we're early. We're certainly, in my mind, pre-web. I think that we have a little bit of a ways to go before that. 
I mean, people complain about the UX and say that, you know, we're in the 80s in terms of the internet, but 2018, I think, probably changed a lot of things UX-wise. I've been pretty impressed with uh, with developments there, uh, especially around key management in particular, you know, non-custodial exchange. Things are accelerating really quick, especially on the UX side, which is, you know, really people's chief complaint. What do you guys see as some of the most promising use cases enabled by crypto. In 2018, arguably the the most important use case was speculation and trading. Uh, We've certainly seen some remittance use cases, some peer-to-peer payments use cases, some gambling prediction market, and even black market use cases. What are you guys thinking about in terms of the the next wave of, of big use cases? There's a serious answer and a gimmicky answer. I mean, let's, you know, let's hear both. The main use case uh, for cryptocurrency really still is, um, you know, the evasion of capital controls. And if you look at uh, local Bitcoin's volumes in your states with failing currencies, they're extremely robust. Um, so th- there is some amount of capital flight that's occurring either into Bitcoin or actually through Bitcoin, you know, into fiat. And in many cases, that's just a way of getting assets out of these failing states. The volumes are, are meaningful, but not overwhelming. I mean, local Bitcoins as a whole will do about $2.2 billion annualized, uh, USD, that is, not Bitcoin. To me, that's probably the most important use case because the protocol itself is granting people access to an exit ramp that they just didn't have access to before. No matter how deficient or volatile the protocol itself is, it's a bare asset which you can acquire online and you can conceal and it's you know hard for it to be confiscated and you can use it to you know send money to you know to your relatives abroad to me that's probably the most important use case in terms of the significance that said it's not just that of course the thing that i've been paying a lot of attention to recently is lending network the total liquidity on the network is still very small but the enthusiasm I've seen, especially among developers, is really extreme. I think what it allows you to do is take some of those initial tokenized models, which were sold for unique tokens back in the 2017 era, take some of those streaming payments idea, true online micropayments ideas, and actually productize those. So I think that's going to be the story of 2019, probably. Uh, not just Lightning, but other overlay networks. I think the trade-offs are really well understood from a development perspective now. I do expect that the peer-to-peer, you know, evading capital controls element continues to grow, especially as we see more of these kind of robust, uh, localized peer-to-peer, you know, exchanges and the enabling technology develop. But in the less dramatic way, you also have this really significant growth of all kinds of business models which rely on, you know, low transaction fee internet value transfer, which just simply were not possible in a credit system or in a a PayPal system. I was talking to a friend who worked at PayPal last week in in their payments team, and he was basically saying how important it is in terms of payments for the, the sender to be the trend center. So, you know, Square Cash, Venmo, PayPal, there's a lot of overlap of the user base. And it's because they're just, they want to have all the options to receive payments based on what the sender chooses to send. So if we're going to see, you know, mass adoption in cryptocurrency, we need to make the UI UX, you know, really strong for the sender. If you have Bitcoin you want to send, or you have another cryptocurrency you want to send, making sure that interaction is really easy. And that'll drive a lot of uh, downstream merchant adoption and 
and other kind of you know peer recipient adoption. So Lightning Network, I think, will be very important for 2019, and hopefully a lot of the products that come with that and that build out will be really important for the development expansion of the space. I think so. I mean, in many ways, Lightning Network is is what we originally thought Bitcoin was going to be for in the very, very early days. It's I think it's truly fulfilling some of the promises for low fee, high kind of throughput transactions that maybe were experimented with. I remember there was a, you know, Streamium was is a good example of a company that was trying to do a streaming video service on layer one, um, you know, several years ago. But these business models that might have just been a little bit early, I think, will be unlocked as a result of the Lightning Network. So out of the private investments you've made so far, are there some you can talk about? Yeah, we, we certainly could. We, uh, why don't we talk about Coinmetrics first, Nick? Uh, yeah, so uh, Coinmetrics uh, was a, initially it was just a open source GitHub repository and um, very simple WordPress site where the objective was to, it was actually a very simple goal, take the data that blockchain.info had for Bitcoin network performance and apply that to all the other major kind of crypto assets. Uh, we started this in early 2017, myself and a couple friends. It eventually uh, got some traction. People kept on quoting the data in their research articles, and they kept on asking us to support new assets. And then eventually, you know, we got set up with Castle Island, and I realized, well, we could actually incubate this thing. And, uh, you know, there seems to be really significant organic demand for just, you know, mature, neutral, so not biased in any way, pure data, which reflects uh, the actual genuine underlying usage of these networks, as opposed to focusing on the exchange data, which is like what a lot of those aggregators do. This is focusing on looking at the ledger itself. And it's not the chainalysis approach where you're trying to de-anonymize individuals and get them sent to jail. It's just the conventional, what's this macro economy of Ethereum or Bitcoin or, you know, or Ripple? Like, and that's what we tried to characterize. And so that ended up actually being one of our portfolio companies. And put together a leadership team. I'm stepping away from the day-to-day, but obviously keeping my eye on it. That's a great one. It's something I use every week. So it's great to hear that you're building a team around it and putting some capital behind it. I think it's a fantastic platform. Appreciate that. You know, we've made six equity investments to date. You know, we're, like I said, very heavily focused on data, custody, and trading technologies. We have an investment in a company called Casa, which is really at the cutting edge of some of these key management things that Nick was talking about earlier. Another company called Flipside Crypto, also in the data space, also a Boston-based company. We have an investment in a tax prep company called Zen Ledger, which is, you know, it's a good year to pay your taxes this year. <laughs> I think there's a lot of losses. <laughs> yeah, and we have a couple other uh, investments that haven't been announced yet. How do you think about valuations in crypto land? Certainly the, the valuations have come down a little bit in the private market over the past uh, few months as the public markets have, have declined. I think valuation is a really interesting topic. I think we tend to view it as a traditional venture firm would look at early stage valuations and try to keep that as a as really our, our true north. Now, valuations of the protocols themselves, I think that's a whole nother can of worms. And there's some really interesting studies going into that. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some major awards won by people in years to come that really try to figure out some of these things. But yeah, I don't know if you'd elaborate on that a little. As far as private valuations, it did seem like there was a significant lag there behind the public markets. Uh, so there was still, you know, a lot of residual enthusiasm uh, for the private valuations, which is challenging. Of course, you're trying to balance 
uh, your own enthusiasm for the industry with uh, with some of the really elevated you know rounds that you're seeing and it's like well we might just have to sit this one out you know even though we love the company so we may be among the more conservative of our cohort but i think ultimately uh there's some of these deals you look back on and and you really don't regret setting them out as you guys continue to evolve and grow as investors what do you think are some of the most important qualities that can allow you to be a world-class investor a world-class crypto investor I think the connectivity back to the development community is just cannot be overemphasized. And I think that's something that we've both tried to really focus on is building our networks and building our understanding in those communities. And, you know, and we have some great advisors uh, to Castle Island that are really deep in that in that world. And so that's one. That was actually what I was going to say was just great relationships with the elite cryptographers and engineers that are actually building the networks that all of these startups rely on, you know, indirectly or directly. And if you do a poor job of forecasting the development trends on a Bitcoin or on an Ethereum, either as a founder or, you know, an investor, you're really going to get burned. And we saw so much of that in, in the early days of Bitcoin, people just totally misunderstanding it, building businesses that just didn't work for it, funding those businesses. That's probably the biggest risk is misunderstanding the protocol itself we try and stay super close to the dev teams. I think the other thing that we really focus on is there are an awful lot of these companies that are pitching themselves on the ability to connect into legacy financial market infrastructure and to reach the millions of customers that are on retail brokerage platforms like a Schwab or a a Fidelity or a TD. And there is an awful lot of legacy systems connectivity there. And there's an awful lot of, there's a lot of things that are not obvious, I guess is a good way to say it. And so we try to bring that to bear. I think we have that experience by working at one of these uh, large financial services firms um, to understand some of uh, what it will take to operationalize some of these things. How do you think about the evolving services you're providing your portfolio companies as Castle Island grows and you add more people, add more resources? What are some things you want to be able to provide to your portfolio companies? One thing we've been thinking deeply about is actually getting advisor relationships with um, with sort of elite cryptographers who can help not only us with guidance, but have that flow through to the portfolio companies. It's really an interesting industry where academic cryptography seems to matter a lot. That's alongside the other suite of services, just access, advice, and help with hiring and so on. What does a typical work week look like for you guys? How do, you, how do you break out your time? I mean, Nick, you're quite active on Twitter and you're someone that's very well respected in the space for your public profile. And you know, how, how do you guys balance out your week? Yeah, I think the week, at least for me, Nick's whole week is on Twitter. I, <laughs> just kidding. The, uh, we spend an awful lot of time with our existing portfolio companies. You know, we're really trying to be very actively involved in these companies um, you know, as we make the investments. And so that is a big part of it, you know, traveling to portfolio companies, spending time with the management team, helping them hire. We also are very outbound focused right now. So we're, we are actively looking for new investments to make out of the fund. And so we're spending a ton of time speaking to talented entrepreneurs. And some of those entrepreneurs have companies already. Some of them are thinking about forming companies and trying to help them and see how we might partner with them in the future is a big part of it. That's the bulk of my time, just talking to founders and potential founders and people that are musing about joining the industry they're not sure you know maybe they want to be placed uh, in a leadership team somewhere they want to start their own thing 
encouraging them to take the leap. I actually do most of my, my blogging and writing on the weekends, so that's how I, how I balance that, <laughs> just by not having anything else that I do. So Nick, you very um, considerately gave me a dye when we walked in. Can you explain what this blue dye is here? I guess you'll have to post a picture or something. I'm probably one of the world's leading buyers of 12-sided dice. Um, so this started as a gimmick. I posted a, a Photoshop meme of um, some critiques of Bitcoin, which I felt were overplayed, and I put them on the sides of this die. And then people actually asked me where they could buy it, so then I went out and, and ordered you know a few hundred of them and, and sold them on the Lightning Network. At the time, I was definitely one of the bigger uh, sources of liquidity on, on the Lightning Network. And, and so what you have on, on the sides is just a bunch of different, uh, you know, what I consider mostly illegitimate critiques, or at least the kind of stuff that you see in the press a lot from journalists that maybe don't pay enough attention to the space. Uh, so the idea is that you're, you're basically parodying your Paul Krugmans and your Noriel Rubinis right. of the world as they're just essentially just generating uh, talking points kind of semi-randomly. Well, two of the criticisms of Bitcoin on this are doesn't scale and unstable fees. And you touched a little bit upon Lightning Network, and it sounds like in 2019 we may have infrastructure which addresses at least two of the concerns on this die. And I'll definitely post a photo of this uh, to our show notes. So what are some important trends in the crypto ecosystem you're observing right now? So many many potential trends to see. I mean, I think one trend that you're seeing, and I'll take the traditional finance uh, lens on this, is I think you are seeing this awakening of Bitcoin as an asset class and this uh, representation of a non-sovereign store of value. Yeah, I think the Fidelity announcement was frankly a big, big part of that. Fidelity announcing in October that they've launched a dedicated business unit to explore digital assets, uh, starting with the custody platform. I think the conversation in a lot of Q4 board meetings is really that we need to figure out what to do about Bitcoin after an announcement like that. And so we are starting to see some of that plumbing be built. We're starting to see some really talented people leaving some firms, some trading firms, some order management, execution type of firms to start some of that infrastructure that needs to get built in order for that to exist. And so that's that's certainly one that we, we would point to. Yeah, on a totally different topic, one trend I would say would actually be the the end of the retail general solicitation ICO, I think that's probably done and dusted at this point. Um, we'll see how some of the private placements do. The large token sales that were not sold to retail, I mean, of course, they'll be a little bit safer uh, from a regulatory perspective. I think one interesting trend, which maybe hasn't been borne out yet, but I would actually expect would be, so we had this resurgence of proof-of-work launches recently uh, with Beam and Grin. Uh, being the main case studies. I would say, you know, your proof-of-work launches are very popular in 2014-15. Just new coins starting from scratch, no pre-mine, just a developer team wanted to create an interesting proof-of-work coin. Litecoin and Monero are other examples of that. Grin is a really interesting reprise of that concept. But there's all this criticism about all these SPVs, which were set up to mine Grin at inception. So the idea is, well, you know, is this actually fair, etc.? What I think we will see would be an alternative to the ICO model where developers create a proof-of-work coin, at least initially, and then maybe they switch to proof-of-stake, but initially they create a proof-of-work coin to mediate the distribution of those units. And they actually pre-sell a set number of ASICs, which they manufacture, you know, which would essentially entitle the buyers of those ASICs, you know, of that hardware, to 
unquestioned access to mining the new units of the protocol for four to six months, which is the time it takes for a competitor to build an ASIC. Uh, so what they would do you know, would be to not disclose the proof-of-work function prior to the launch. They create these bespoke ASICs, would give investors unfettered access to the spoils of the first few months or so, and then it's you know, free-for-all. And I think what that does is it allows developers without actually retaining, you know, rights to some pre-mine or, you know, some cash of coins, which they keep in reserve, it allows them to also finance development beforehand. I think that could be a really interesting model, which we haven't seen a lot of so far, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some launches like that in, in 2019. So fast forward to 2030, what is different about the global monetary system than today? So I have this conspiracy theory that some of the second tier uh, monetary states, you know, really anybody that isn't the U.S., just because the dollar is a de facto reserve currency, might actually coalesce around an alternative to the dollar because the U.S. being able to mint the world's reserve currency is this exorbitant privilege, it's been called. And there may be support for a, you know, a non-sovereign alternative to that. I think it would have to take a lot for any state to become comfortable with a algorithmically issued currency as opposed to a state issued one. But you've heard these noises out of China and Russia that an alternative to the dollar is wanted, but they don't necessarily have the political capital to put the world on a renminbi standard, you know, or a ruble standard. So the question becomes what happens when the the unipolar world and and this monetary hegemon declines in influence? And we're already seeing this with... um, Bretton Woods, now all those institutions are really significantly crumbling. And I think there will be, you know, a power void to be filled as your IMFs, your world banks, they decline in stature to some degree. And as the the rest of the world grows relative to the U.S. and becomes more resentful of the fact that the dollar is the reserve asset and that gives the U.S. this unlimited ability to finance its debts for, for really low interest rates. So... It's going to be a really interesting transition. I don't know if a cryptocurrency or any of the ones that exist in the current cohort will be the one. Maybe there will be some consortium coin created. But I think the world has kind of awoken to the fact that the dollar's authority is not absolutely unquestioned. Coinbase wrote a good op-ed in the New York Times the other day about this. It's unknown what it'll look like, but I do think that the dollar is really going to decline in stature over the next couple of decades. There's a lot of arguments of why that could be the case. And, you know, I think we're going to have, you know, sovereign money be challenged over the next decade in a lot of different formats. So it's going to be interesting to watch and particularly invest behind. Um, So how can our listeners follow the progress of Castle Island and how can they, you know, get in touch with you guys and get to meet you guys if they want to be funded? Twitter DMs are the best for me, for sure. So my DMs are always open to anybody. I absolutely welcome that. Um, Happy to field pitches there. Uh, we also have a website with, you know, castleisland.vc. And I also write a lot about cryptocurrency and the, the sort of economics of cryptocurrency uh, on my Medium page. The key takeaways from today's episode are, one, Castle Island Ventures believes that some of the most compelling investment opportunities in crypto are on public blockchain infrastructure and applications. Two, Nick talks about the importance of public-private key management and how there might be some very large businesses built around this industry. And three, in addition to looking for infrastructure and application businesses, 
Nick and Matt are bullish on non-sovereign censorship resistant store of value, with Bitcoin currently in the pole position become this global store of value. Thank you for listening to the show. We're trying to make the crypto ecosystem more mainstream and welcoming. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review in iTunes and share this with one person you know who is trying to learn more about crypto technology. You can reach me on Twitter at Zachary DeWitt or email me at Zach at wing.vc.